Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Alan Crosby's Wine Country series mixes murder with the Merlot in a romp through the affluent horse and hunt country of North Virginia. Demand for the books is attested by their prominence on the shelves. Book number eight, The Vineyard Victims, is out this week, and book number nine, already in early stages of planning. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today, guest mystery writer Alan Crosby talks about the family health challenges that helped shape her key character, Lucy Montgomery, and why mystery is popular in uncertain times. But before we hear from Alan, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode are available at the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Alan's website and books, as well as a free ebook and information on how to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Alan. Hello there, Alan, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for inviting me. That's just lovely. Now, it's one question that I always like to start with. Was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if so, what was the catalyst that got you started? Um, The catalyst that got me started was my husband being transferred to Geneva, Switzerland um, many years ago, in 1984, actually. And I had been working. I was an economist. I worked on Capitol Hill. Um, I thought I was going to have a long career in government or in some, you know, in some kind of the work in the working world. And then all of a sudden um, he was offered a job to open um, the uh, Geneva Bureau for the Voice of America in in Geneva and and, uh, to open the Bureau for the Voice of America in Geneva, Switzerland. And um, it just sounded really idyllic. So I quit my job. We had our oldest child was one and we moved to Switzerland and I was really at loose ends and I didn't know what to do. And I'd always liked to write. So I thought, well, maybe I'll write a novel. It can't be that hard. And of course, it was very hard. And it took me a really long time. Um, fortunately, it was never it never saw the light of day. I lugged it around the world with me for years. And finally, when we lived in London, I gave it a decent burial. And it's now fertilizing gardens in London, I hope, somewhere. <laughs> We'll get to talking about your first book. I wasn't sure whether that one you started in Geneva turned into Moscow Nights, but we will talk about Moscow Nights a bit later on. But um, the mystery series, because this is the joys of binge reading and we're really focusing on books that you can read as a series. You've got book eight in the Vineyard, The Vineyard Victims, coming out, I think just this week it's officially released. Tomorrow, yes. Congratulations on that. Did you ever think when you began that you'd be getting to book eight? I didn't know that there would be a series when I began because what happened was um, I started um, Moscow Nights, which uh, I know we'll talk about that later, but my first book was published in London and my British literary agent was asking me 
what I was going to write next. And um, I had told her we had been, our, we were we were living in London, and our family had gone back to America for the summer on a on a trip. And a friend had taken us on a tour of the vineyards of Virginia. And my husband is French. We had lived in Geneva, actually lived over the border in France, and we visited all these gorgeous French vineyards. Um, and I just didn't even know there were any vineyards in Virginia. Um, so when I came back, I happened to be telling her about that trip, and she said, you know, that's a great idea for a series, Ellen, for a book, actually. And I said, yeah, 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 but, and, you know, for somebody else. And she said, no, no, that you need to write that book. And I said, I don't know anything about, you know, making, uh, making wine and growing grapes. And she said, well, you can figure it out. You'll learn. And I said, all right, I'll write one. And now I've, you know, I number eight's coming out. Yeah, so it was the biggest surprise to me as it was to anybody else. I think. Well, that's interesting because you certainly have become very inured in your subject, so that it sounds as if it was a passion from day one. So that's um, thank you. Good to your view. Now it very successfully plays on the romance of wine and a nostalgia about history, and and it's very affluent horse and hunt country that they're set in too. So I just wondered what attracted you to that setting, although perhaps that's already been explained. It obviously is a very beautiful area. Well, the the, the thing was when we came back, we finally moved, we moved back to America and I knew I had to write this book and I thought, well, I don't know anything. And uh, um, how am I going to find out what happens at a vineyard all day and how am I going to be able to write you know, to, to make it sort of realistic. Um, so I got out, um, I got out the roadmap, um, of Northern Virginia where I live. And, and the, back then this was, this would be, um, 19, no, yeah, like 1998, 1999. There weren't anywhere near as many vineyards as there are now in Virginia. So I needed to find a vineyard that I could drive to and get home in time. And by now I had three children and they were all in school. And I thought I've got to be home in time for the school bus. So, this there was a vineyard in this beautiful little town called Middleburg, and I drove out there and I met the lady who was um, who um, owned it. She and her husband and I told her that I wanted to um, write a book um, and um, set in a vineyard where um, somebody died and you know murders were committed. And luckily, she um, she loved an American television show called Murder She Wrote, so she thought it was a great idea and she took me in and and introduced me. So I was really really lucky. That's great, and I you became quite friendly with that couple, I think, didn't you? because I saw a lovely um, tribute that you wrote online to them. Thank you. Yeah, she was quite, um, she became quite famous, actually. Her name was Juanita Swedenberg. She passed away in 2007. But um, she, in America, we have these um, really sort of arcane rules for whether or not an individual state, whether you can ship wine from one of our states across state lines to another state. And that was all part of what happened after prohibition in America, where it was just decided that individual states would get to to say, you know, what could and couldn't come into their state. So places like New York and California obviously didn't want other wine coming in. Um, and so she thought, well, you know, you should be able to ship anything across any state border in, you know, uh, in America because you could, she had, she grew, she raised cattle and she said, well, I can ship my cattle to New York. Why can't I send my wine? So she actually, um, a friend with, along with a lawyer, lawyer friend of hers, she sued the state of New York and the lawsuits kept going back and forth and back and forth and making national and international news um, until it came to the Supreme Court and it was decided as a constitutional issue and the Supreme Court found for her that you can ship your wine across state lines. So it was a real, so she became quite a celebrity and so she was very interesting, you know, talking to her during, um, while that case was evolving. Yes, yeah, yeah. 
The books also have a, I really enjoy the historical aspect of them because it's an area that's steeped in history, events harking back to the Civil War. Yes. Um, do you share that fascination? It comes through quite strongly, particularly some of the founding fathers, like President Thomas Jefferson's interest in wine and food. Well, the thing was, um, you know, since I only thought I was going to write the one book, um, and then, um, and my vineyard was based on Juanita's Vineyard, which was a very small vineyard in Middleburg with 15 acres and only a couple different kinds of wine. And so as the series kept going on, she said, my goodness, you're going to have to plant more, you know, it's going to have to be bigger. So um, I, I, but as I knew I was going to have to write more books, I thought, you know, there's only so much arcane information you can put about wine. I mean, people really don't care about spraying for powdery mildew and, you know, all that sort of thing. So I thought, well, what would keep as a, as a, as the writer, what would keep my interest? And I am, uh, I was born in Boston. I'm a New England girl. I'm a Yankee down here in Virginia. Um, and I began to um, realize that there's just a tremendous amount of history in Virginia. There's We have a lot of Revolutionary War history. We have Civil War history. Um, a lot of the founding fathers were from Virginia. Um, so much happened here. And also, um, where I live in Virginia is actually the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area. I mean, Washington is sort of our big, our, is, is our big city, um, even though it's Virginia. It's not that far south. So um, I just, I it's sort of became something that I did, that every book, there was some way I was going to reach back and find some aspect of history and relate it to the present. So all of my books, and it was just so easy to do because there was so much, there's just so much here. And that for me was kind of the, 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 the other things or the, the murder and then there was the wine, but there was also the history and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I must say that having read, you were the one that sort of sparked me to, to look further into you know, things like Thomas Jefferson's slave that he took to France with him to train him to be a chef. There's some inter very fascinating stories there, isn't there? Oh, yeah, there's some really fascinating stories. You you know a lot about wine now. Have you ever been tempted to invest in a winery yourself or a vineyard? Oh, well, there's <laughs> a saying that the way to make a small fortune in a vineyard is to start with a large one. Yeah. And, and it's really true. I mean, there is just no way. It's a, it's really hard um, work. And one of the things Juanita taught me was it's your farmers. I mean, it's, you know, you think that you sort of toddle around all day with a glass of champagne in your hand and you look at, you know, what God's done to the vineyards. I mean, it's just every everybody I know, they work really hard. And where we are in Virginia, um, one of the things Juanita used to tell me was, for example, that the wines in Virginia are more like the European wines because we have the four seasons, but the California wines are more like Australia and New Zealand because you all have that wonderful sunshine and those long, you know, those long um, seasons of, of, of sort of um, milder weather. Um, so it's, it's just, it's hard work. We have winter, we have snow, we have freezes, we have hurricanes. It's, it's, uh, it's tough work. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's a bit like sailing, isn't it? It's like owning a yacht. It sounds great, but it's a, a hole you sink money into. That's right. Yeah, exactly. What about the actual drinking side of it? Um, have has your personal taste changed over this ten years? Have you drunk more wine than you would have done otherwise? Do you think? Um, well, I, you know, my husband's French, and so we've always drunk wine at at, at dinner, and. Um, 
I'm just so spoiled. When we lived in France, he, he used to get the guidachette. And every summer when we used to travel, we'd go, you know, through France and we had family in Austria. So we'd drive through Switzerland and we'd stop at all these wonderful vineyards. And Andre always knew the wine he wanted. So he really introduced me to the good wines. And to this day, I still say, honey, you know, you choose the wine at dinner. But um, but when we lived in France, one of the things that I, that I just loved was you know, we, we'd entertain, we'd have a dinner party and, the, and and we'd spend a lot of time deciding on the meal. But then we would go to the little wine shop in, our, in the village we lived in. And you would think we were discussing something incredibly important because we would talk about, well, how are we going to cook the meat and what are we going to do with the vegetables? And, and then the decision about the wine became, it was just something that was part of the meal. And to realize how much pleasure that can give you that you want this wonderful meal for friends with just the right wine that, that complements the food. I, mean, I really love that. And I, and I, I found a lot of sort of romance and a lot of just, you know, graciousness in that kind of way of, of dining. Sounds gorgeous. And from what you're saying, I, I can understand perhaps a little more why you gave Lucy your heroine in the Wine Country series a background which began in Europe and, and yes. has got European connections. Obviously, that is something close to you. Yes, it was funny because I, um, all, going all the way back to my, my, my British, my, my literary agent in London, I said, well, you know, Mary, I want to set a book in a foreign setting, so I really don't want to write about wine. And she said, Ellen, you're living in London. Virginia is a foreign setting. And I thought, well, she has a point. Um, but um, I, you know, I sort of wanted to give Lucy one foot in Europe, which would be my way of having the foreign setting, and that it would be possible to give her that international background. So I made her, I made her half French, like my kids. Yeah, that's great. Great. Perhaps just going back to that beginning again, you, you had a, a strong journalistic career. You were Moscow correspondent for ABC News. You've written features for the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. So you've got the pedigree to do the other books that you uh, have done so successfully, the Sophie Medina books. Now, there's just two of those about a photojournalist who gets mixed up in international espionage. I, I just wondered how did you jump from doing your journalism to those Sophie Medina books? Um, actually, it was um, easier than I would have thought because that was that's kind of my world. I made Sophie. I didn't want to make her a journalist. Moscow Nights was about a journalist, but I've, I've always loved photography. I'm sort of a, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, an amateur photographer. I'm always carrying a camera, always taking pictures. So I made her a photojournalist, um, but I really know that world, you know, and I, I worked as a foreign correspondent. My husband was a foreign correspondent. Um, and I, I um, the other thing is that um, where I live in Northern Virginia, the CIA is in my backyard, basically. And don't, and I, you know, there's, there's the, the defense intelligence agency. There's, there's all kinds of, of spy organizations in, in, um, in, in Washington. And so I know a lot of people, um, they can't talk about their work. Um, I remember my family who's involved in intelligence. So, um, it was kind of an, it wasn't as hard as you would think, um, to, to write about, um, you know, uh, uh, Sophie having a husband work for the CIA. Juanita's husband worked for the CIA. That came out after he passed away. I mean, nobody talks about it openly, but but um, it's it's. I just know a lot of people in that world. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the things I liked about Sophie Medina was that sense of 
being a little bit of a voyeur in institutions and and settings that you might never get the chance to visit yourself. Do you think that was that an intentional part of the way that you structured the books to give them that appeal? Um, well, thank you for that. I, I hope so because one of the things that turned out to be um, the sort of the interesting thing for me about the Sophie books is everybody thinks they know Washington D.C. And I, you know, I, in my next life, I'm probably coming back as a tour guide or, you know, a history professor or something. But I, I really liked finding the places that are there in plain sight that nobody ever sees and writing about them. And I did that a little bit in the, in the wine country books as well. But, um, but I, I really enjoy doing that. And, you know, that there's so many places, you know, people walk by every day and they never notice something was there or whatever. So, so that there was a great deal of appeal um, to do that. You know, that I, I enjoyed doing that. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we, we had you in Switzerland writing a book that I gather never has seen the light of day. Thank goodness. <laughs> Did you then go, was it Moscow next on the list? And was that where you started to write Moscow Nights? No, what happened was, so I, I had this barely finished book and we, we went to Russia. Andre was, um, he opened the Moscow Bureau for the Voice of America there. And that was a pretty, um, it was the end of, it was still the Soviet Union. It was that we didn't know it, but it was the end of the Gorbachev era, the end of the country. And it was a really, really exciting time. And I got this job freelancing for ABC radio and it was just so exciting. There wasn't time to even take a breath. It was just so busy, but my husband got very, very sick there. Um, he got something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's almost instant paralysis. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, um, a, fortunate cousin to MS, multiple sclerosis or ALS. And um, you do recover from it, but he got a really bad case of it in Russia. So we we had to move home. I moved the children home. Um, He spent six months in a hospital in Washington, um, moved to a wheelchair and um, and it was just, it was just a really rough time. And he finally ended up going back to work, but it was about nine months later. And we, our overseas career was, was over as far as we thought. So, um, I was, you know, back with sort of caring for him, getting into physical therapy. So I thought I would write a book about our time in Russia, but by then I thought it would be nonfiction. And at that point, um, there was finally a literary agent who said to me, Alan, you know, we have so many memoirs from every KGB general. I mean, there's, we, there's, we're just inundated. She said, why don't you just make up your story? So I thought, well, why not? So by then, um, Andre was offered the post in London. Somebody had left and um, London was a great place to go back and especially for a writer. So we went back to London and I started working on the Moscow book in London. Oh, okay, good. And Andre's made a full recovery? No, actually he hasn't, um, which is part of the reason when people ask me about um, Lucy, why is she disabled? Um, at first I used to say, well, you know, I needed a reason to get her to, to France and she was recovering from a car accident. And finally one day Andre heard me at a, at a book talk and he said, why don't you tell them the real reason? So the real reason actually is that um, my husband does walk with the cane and was, you know, I mean, he was an athlete before he played semi-professional soccer. We skied, we played tennis, he was a runner. And um, I really wanted to explore what it's like for somebody who leaves that being so able-bodied and fit and and you know whole and um, and ends up having to learn to live with a disability. What it's like. So mm-hmm. he didn't, but he's you know he's he's hanging in there. He still does physical therapy twenty seven years later. Gosh, that, that's a really touching story. And the aspect of Lucy does add a sort of um, yes a. a a frisson to the whole 
series that she's struggling with that. The most recent one I read, she was being offered some extra therapy and was considering whether she was going to take it or not. So that is obviously something that is very close to your heart. Well, um, it's it's funny because what happened was um, things got pretty bad for Andrew. He, his, he also had his foot, one of his feet his, didn't recover and he had to walk with a brace and it got infected and all this other sort of thing. And finally, there was a um, somebody who made the brace for his leg who said, you know what, I know a doctor who can fix you. And we just never, had, we didn't even know about this. So we went to see this doctor in a, in a part of Virginia where we hadn't, we just didn't even know about this guy. And it was one of these things, I don't know if you know the show called The Bionic Man that was um, in America years and years ago. Uh-huh. But yeah. We can rebuild you. We can make you better. We can make you, you know, superhuman. And he did. He rebuilt his foot. And um, it's been sort of, a, it's been a miracle. I mean, it's it was just amazing what he what he was able to do. So I thought about it and I, I just kind of wondered if, I, you know, what she might do. And I actually asked a lot, I, I put the question up to um, in, one, in a newsletter, and a lot of people said that if she has the opportunity, you know, you should heal her. But then a couple of people who were um, disabled wrote me and said, you know, there aren't too many books about people in our world. Um, she lives a full life. She's she's in love. She she runs a business. She's tough. Um, don't don't heal her. Yeah, yeah. And you can sense that tension in the book that I read. That was she almost. Um, Somehow, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's just escaped me. But not accepting that she is a whole person just because she's got a slight, you know, difference. In her. Yeah, yeah. And somehow or other, she has to have herself fixed to feel whole again when she already is a whole person who just happens to have a limp. Mm-hmm. I've actually had mail from people who really have problems with a disabled character. Yeah. And- they just don't want to, and even Juanita, bless her heart, I mean, God love her, but she said, can't you just heal her between books? You know, I said, well, <laughs> no, not really, you know. I mean, she, but someone wrote me and said, whatever you do to her, she'll always be the person she was. And that really stuck with me. I mean, she'll never, she'll never be the same again. And I have to say, I mean, I think um, we also have an autistic son and, you know, it's just, it's just life changing. I mean, it really, really is uh, the the world that you live in when somebody you love has a disability, whether it's from birth or, you know, just because of an accident or, or an illness or something like that. It's, um, it's a really different place. And I, um, I, I try to write about it as honestly as I can, you know, you don't want to be maudlin, you don't want to be, you know, I, I, but I, I, um, I don't know. It's been, it's, it just seems to me it's part of who who Lucy is. Yeah, that's right. And, and having had this lovely conversation about Lucy, um, the, the question that I do sometimes ask has seemed to me a slightly deeper ring to it, and that is, what do you hope that readers take away from your books? Is there a deeper message than simple entertainment? Um, well, I think it goes back to the whole notion of history and and, um, and that, that um, I really hope people learn something when they're done with my books. I hope that you know, you're intrigued to go read more about the War of 1812, or maybe you didn't know about, um, I don't know, the, 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 the Civil War battle that I wrote about, or, you know, just, just some aspect of history. I mean, I think, especially Americans, we are just horrible. I, when, we, when we lived in London, people, um, you know, in the British newspapers, people would write about, say, when Ted Kennedy was running for um, senator in Massachusetts, and everybody knew where Massachusetts was in in England. I mean, over here, you have to explain everything as far as how far it is from London. I mean, we just we just don't have that same 
you know, sort of, we're just more unaware, I think, of, of our geography and our history, world history. Um, so I, I just, I, I'm, it's kind of like sugar with the, with the pill that I hope people learn something. Yeah, yeah. So moving away from specific books, talking a little bit more about your general career, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you think's been the secret to your success? Well, I think there's actually probably two things. One of them is I worked as a journalist. And when you work as a journalist, you must get something done. It could always be better, but you have a deadline. And that that means you finish it. And that's always one of the things that whenever people ask me, you know, how did you write your book and what did you do? I said, the difference between me and you is I finished it. And I think the journalistic background really, really helped a lot. Um, The other thing is that when I moved to London, I took two really fabulous um, classes. I spent a week, um, I don't know if you've heard of the Arvon Foundation, but it's an arts program. I spent a week in Scotland. um, with a, a couple of tutors and a, and a group of people in a beautiful old um, croft there. And, and that was really, that was just a really good opportunity to sort of focus on my craft. And then I took a course in London by a man named Robert McKee. It's called Story Structure, and it's basically for filmmakers. But, you know, a movie is the same as a book, basically. It's, it's, it's got to be a compelling story. Um, and I, I learned a tremendous amount from how he taught screenwriting to sort of translate it into how to write a book. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have heard of him, actually. He's really well-known, isn't he? That's Yes, mm. yes, he's amazing. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, tell me, is there a mystery in your own life that could be the plot line for a story? Um I, you know, I think basically it would be sort of the story of Andre's illness, um, what happened. A lot of people don't know about it. And when I, when Moscow Nights just got reprinted in um, the United States, I ended up putting it in the preface because it explained why I wrote that book. Um, And I just had to get Russia out of my system. So I guess it's not so unknown, but it's, you know, I've I've never really talked about it um, until sort of more recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're calling out podcast, The Joys of Binge Reading. And I'm just moving on to talking a little bit about binge reading. Have you ever been a binge reader yourself? And if so, who would you recommend for others? Um, you know, I was thinking about that because um, I've never really been a binge reader. I, And especially now that I'm a writer, it's so hard to do something like that. I mean, you really fight for your time to not only write um, but also to get some reading done. So, um, and I have so many friends, you know, you want to keep up with their books. I'm on a panel with somebody. I want to make sure I've read everybody's book on the panel, um, at a, you know, at a, at a conference or something like that. So there's a lot of reading, but what I have done actually is the opposite of binge reading. Um, we have in America, in the mystery community, we have the Edgar awards, uh, for, um, they're, they're probably the premier mystery awards in America. And, um, I've been an Edgar judge. And what that, yeah, and what's cool about that is um, you read widely and across the genre. So, and particularly once I chaired and once I was on the short story committee. And so that's, that was like seven or 800 short stories that you read in a year. And uh, then so many mystery authors will also write short stories. It's a very, um, it's a very, um, interesting genre in that, you know, you have people who write long fiction, but they also write short fiction. I don't know where else you, you find that. And, and, and so I got a chance to sort of sample a lot of people who I hadn't read. Um, and again, read, you know, it's, it made me read things that aren't really my favorite. You know, I'm not really much on sort of very noir books, um, or, um, things that are more science fiction or whatever, but, but it, it broadens your horizon. So I'm sort of the opposite, I guess, of a binge reader. 
Yeah, that that also raises the question of your own choice of genre. Why did you choose mystery as a genre for writing in? Um, I don't know. I think because I did read mysteries when I was growing up. I mean, I was a political science major in um, undergraduate school, and I got a, a degree in international relations, so it doesn't seem like a natural segue. But but I did like mysteries. You know, I read Nancy Drew, and I read you know a lot of the sort of the classic mysteries. Um, but the other thing is that the mystery world is. It's a very satisfying world, especially now in this day and age, especially in our country, where we have there's so much uncertainty. There's so much, there's so much, you know, angst, and people are nervous and worried, and 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 sometimes it doesn't seem that you know that, that there's justice, and um, you know that that really that good doesn't always triumph over evil, and that that people can do bad things and get away with them. And in that world, you know, you get to like write R I G H T and W R I T E those wrongs, and I. I just think that's really like therapy, you know, it's just really satisfying. Yeah, it, it brings to mind a, a quote that I saw from Robert McKee, which really rang with me. And that was that he was talking about historical novels, but but I guess any story that the controlling idea needs to um, sort of have some resonation with people's lives currently. He, he was talking about historical fiction, but Mystery and crime, as you've described, would do that, wouldn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Especially now. I, I got a very interesting email from a friend of ours who um, was a correspondent for a, a, one of the big networks, still is actually, but we met in Moscow. And, he, and he's been all over the world. I see him on television. He's in war zones and he's at, he's at tragedies and he's at shootings and everything else. And he said, you know, I'm sitting here with my wife. And he said, she's in what, reading one of your books and I'm reading the other. And he said, it's just nice to read about a world where, you know, you just kind of know things are going to, you know, right, you know, wrongs are going to be righted. And I thought, this guy, some of the stuff he's seen, you know, I just watching on television. And to say, I just need that kind to step away from from just too much of it in, in my face and just read something like that. And it was, I was probably one of the nicest letters I've gotten uh, in a while, nicest fan letters I've gotten in a while. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely. Look, circling round from the beginning to the end, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, what, if anything, would you change? Um, you know what? I wouldn't change anything. I mean, I sometimes I wish I'd sort of started younger um, and I hadn't started as sort of a mature writer. But I started when um, I, my, my first book was published when my, you know, my oldest was going off to college and my middle son was, you know, writing college applications. And I, I, um, I found, I'm, it's my turn to have a quote for you, but I, it's, I had, I've had it on my bulletin board for so many years. It's yellow and it's probably going to crumble if I touch it, but it's a quote from Catherine Patterson, um, the author introduction to her book, a sense of wonder. And it's very, very old, but it says, Success might have come sooner if I'd had a room of my own and fewer children, but I doubt it. For as I look at my writing, it seems to me that the very persons who took away my time and space are the ones who have given me something to say. And I think that's really true. I would not, I would not have missed any of my boys growing up and being there, you know, with them um, and being there with my husband. I mean, I freelanced enough. I, I you know, I dabbled and 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 did my, um, you know, worked as a journalist, but. Um, first and foremost, I, you know, I was a mom and I, I have three amazing sons now. We, we have three amazing sons and I wouldn't trade that for anything. That's wonderful, Ellen. That's just great. So what is next for Ellen Crosby, the writer? What are you currently working on? 
Well, starting, well, tomorrow actually is election day in Virginia, but my book comes out tomorrow and I start touring on Wednesday after the bloodletting is over with the election. Um, so I'm going to be on the road quite a lot, but I'm also finishing the ninth book um, that's going to be called Harvest of Secrets and it will be out in 2018. And probably after Christmas, I start writing the 10th book in the series. So I'm busy. Wow. And I feel very privileged that we've got to chat with you just before you go on tour. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for for finding me and and making this happen. So coming to the end of our chat, where can people find you and your books online? I am everywhere. You can find me. um, Well, I have a website, ellencrosby.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, All my books are out as um, audiobooks. They're out as eBooks. And I believe you can order them from Amazon New Zealand. You should be able to, I think. Um, And um, so I'm, I'm pretty findable if you look me up. Good. And do you like to engage with people on social media? I do, but I it takes a lot of time. And the one thing that my husband always says is that the the one thing that you, that I never realized with because with being a writer is that the hardest thing you would fight for is, is is carving out the time to write because there's so much involved in promotion these days. So I, I like it, but I also have learned to step away and you know just make sure you know turn it off literally and write on a different computer that's not online so that I can get my writing done and don't look up every time something dings yeah that's that's right well look thank you so much for being with us our time is up look all the best with the tour and we look forward to the coming book oh thanks so much Jenny it's so good to talk to you thank you bye thanks for listening to the joys of binge reading podcast You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.